You are listening to Hear Her Sports, a podcast for active, adventurous women who love hearing stories from other active, adventurous women. I'm your host, Elizabeth Emery, and in every episode, I introduce a female athlete or woman in sport through a conversation about who they are and the terrific work they're doing. Hello and welcome. This week, I'm talking to Iris Wang, an American badminton player who is at the moment training in California for an upcoming series of competitions in Asia. But for the last several years, she primarily trains in Denmark and competes in a league there. Iris and I talk about why she trains in Denmark, growth mentality, the lack of a U.S. national team and the impact of that, rejuvenation during COVID quarantine, and being a smaller player. Thank you to Iris for sharing her stories on the show. Let me now introduce her. Olympian Iris Wang is a singles badminton player from Los Angeles, California. She started playing as a young kid and has been competing internationally and frequently meddling for more than a decade in singles, doubles, and team competitions. She competed in the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio, won bronze medals in the 2015, 2019, and recently in the 2022 Pan Am Games. In January, she was elected to the Badminton World Federation Athletes Commission, a position she will hold through 2025. Iris graduated with a bachelor's in business economics from UCLA, and outside of badminton, she enjoys reading, drawing, and binging on Netflix shows. Well, welcome, Iris. Thanks for being here. You're the first badminton player on the show. Oh, wow. Thanks for having me. I'm also excited to talk about badminton. Well, just in case there are other people like me that don't know that much about badminton, could you, I don't know, give us a like badminton 101 just to give us a, you know, like an overview and maybe some of the things that we should look out for? Mm, okay. Actually, I've never explained it, but yeah, I guess there are a lot of people in the U.S. that don't really know that it's competitive. And yeah, so first of all, uh, I think most people think of it as a backyard sport, but it's actually played indoors competitively um, because there's so much wind outside. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and we play with a shuttlecock that has, I think it's 16 goose feathers attached to a cork. And it's actually the fastest racket sport in the world. You know, I read that when I was prepping to talk to you. Mm-hmm. I hadn't realized it was that fast. I also hadn't realized that it was only pretty recently that it was added to the Olympics. Yeah, I think it, I'm actually, do you know when it was added? I, I... 1992. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty recent. And I'm glad that I was born after that so that I could actually (laughs) compete. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing that I read, and maybe you can help me understand this more, is that it's almost as popular as soccer, or maybe even more popular than soccer. That must not be in the States, as you mentioned. It must be popular elsewhere. (laughs) Yeah. um, It's actually very popular in the Asian countries. So very popular in India, especially. And then China, Korea. I think those are also the top countries right. in the badminton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think more recently, uh, there have been really good players coming from Europe as well. And I think it's been expanding a bit so that it's not so dominated by the Asian countries now. So that's nice to see. How did you get involved? And I know that your sister is also involved. So I assume maybe your parents were interested? Um, no, actually, uh, my parents never played. Oh. Yeah, so it's a funny story. I have an older sister. And so her 
friend had a birthday party and they were playing badminton in the backyard and I tagged along because I was the younger sister and at that time I was so amazed by this new sport or I didn't know what it was so I wanted to play and I was horrific at it. My sister and her friends didn't really want me to play because I was so bad and I was younger and then uh, my parents told me when I came home that day I asked to get lessons and it just started off. That's cool. That's very precocious of you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was so stubborn as a kid. So what was appealing about it? Mm, I don't know. I think it was just that I had never done it before. Right. Um, and yeah, it was different from all the other sports that I've kind of seen. Like, I guess growing up with like basketball and soccer and football being some of the bigger sports in the U.S. And I think I just liked the feeling of like hitting the shuttle. It's funny because my, I don't know if I've ever seen a real shuttlecock. You know, the one I've seen are those plastic ones that you get at mm. Kmart or whatever. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so what what's the real shuttlecock like? You mentioned that it was goose feathers and cork, but can you describe it a little bit more? Yeah, if you know the plastic one, it's shaped the same, except instead of the plastic net that surrounds the cork, it's the goose feathers and it's a uh, lighter and I think it's easier to control. Oh, okay. Yeah. Actually, I think the plastic is lighter and it flies a lot faster. Hmm. Yeah. So. And what about the rackets? What do we need to know about the rackets? Um, the rackets are lighter than the tennis rackets and the string is thinner as well. The frame is like a tennis racket, or I think it's more similar to a squash racket. And then the grip is thinner as well. I think overall the racket is kind of smaller and thinner and the head of the racket is also smaller. So maybe it requires more precision, but the cork is also smaller. So I guess I don't, I'm not sure how it compares with like tennis or other racket sports. Do you think of it in relation to tennis or do you n not compare it to anything? Mm, because I didn't play tennis before I played badminton, I don't really compare it. But I do know that in badminton, we do use more wrist than in tennis. I think even though the tennis court is bigger, we run around a lot. I think more on the badminton court, but I, I'm also not sure. And yeah, if I'm wrong, uh, I hope I don't get any hate for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to talk a little bit more about running around the course because I've heard you say that you're smaller, so you do run around the course. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about your training. Like, where are you training? Where are you competing? You know, like when's the season? Sort of stuff like that. Okay. Well, I grew up training in the U.S., but I had been to China to train as well, like in the summers. And then after I graduated, I had more time to kind of explore different training environments outside of the country. But currently, I'm mostly based in Denmark. I was there for the last nine months until I just came back this weekend. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I'm playing in the Danish league there, as well as the German league. 
and the season for those is usually from September to April-ish. And so during that period of time, I train in Denmark and play in the leagues there and then play tournaments as well on the side. How did you choose to train there? I got an offer to play in the league there. And then it kind of just happened. The training there is also uh, more organized than the training in the U.S. at the moment. So it's been good and it's different from... Like, uh, so in the U.S., a lot of the times I have to kind of plan training myself and find people, whereas in Denmark, they have a group that's already there, and then we train every day at this set time and then do weights together, and so it's more team-like. Where are you living? Um, I live in a city called Aarhus. And, and, but is it in, like, a club facility, or do you have your own apartment? No, it's kind of like a dorm. Like, I live above the training facility. Oh, cool. Yeah, it feels like I'm back in college. <laughs> so it was really nice to be home. <laughs> Although it's nice I have my own bathroom, but we have a shared kitchen. Uh-huh. And, like, a lot of the people that live there are other athletes, and they're younger. So they don't always do the best job of cleaning up after themselves. <laughs> so that's why it's a yeah. little bit, yeah, not as nice as being home, I'd right. say. <laughs> so describe a little bit more about how these, I'm sort of fascinated by sort of this sort of club system that you are in when you're there. So like there's training twice a day or once a day. How does that all work? Like you wake up and then what? So I wake up and then I usually have training. It's different each day. So I train at 8 a.m. three times a week. And then uh, I train twice a day on court two times a week. And I train weights twice a week. And, and on court, what does training look like? On court is it can be one against one and then we do set drills um, or we have like specific things we want to work on. For example, offense and de versus defense or uh, more specific drills to like one particular shot that you want to work on or some strategy that you would like to work on. And then sometimes we do two against one, which makes it faster and prepares you for tournament well and sometimes we play matches where we just play a match <laughs> and what about strength training what what kind of work are you having to do in the gym um when i'm at Aarhus, they have a strength and conditioning coach so i kind of just follow the program there um, but a lot of it is explosiveness mm. which is important for badminton do you like strength training Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that was not enthusiastic. <laughs> I do. I did like um, the process of feeling like I'm getting stronger, which is nice. Um, but I'm pretty small. So a lot of things are really heavy. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a uh, strength training. But um, I think I think it's nice to see the progress and see improvement. 
Uh, so I think it's important. Yeah. I actually <laughs> love strength training for that very reason. I, you know, like I think compared to other aspects of training, it's often the one place where, you know, like progress is very obvious. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, I think, yeah. yeah. Now you mentioned that you were small and I did want to talk about that. So just to reveal a little bit, I'm I'm five four, so not much taller than you are. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're five three, right? I'm five two. Oh, five two. Okay. <laughs> I had always thought of athletes as tall, and so you know, like my internalization was I'm not an athlete because I'm not tall. So, like, how do you relate to being short, and has it ever held you back? And you know, how have you overcome it? And I, you know, we can talk now a little bit about your tactics because you're short if you want okay um i think the nice thing about badminton is that there's so many different body types um that play and there's different advantages and disadvantages with different body types like compared to other sports like basketball where i don't think i could ever uh, excel or yeah be successful in that because of my height but i think for badminton yeah there's so many different styles and like it's not just your physical ability, it's so many other factors that can change the game or, yeah, give someone the winning edge. So for me, since I'm small, I have to run a lot. Uh, so some taller players might be able to reach the shuttle in one step, but I'll need my two steps. So I have to be fast. My style is more defensive. I guess since I'm closer to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think it has its uh, advantages. I think usually smaller players are a little faster and a little bit more mobile, can turn a little faster, whereas taller players have more angle in their shots and they have more reach. So I think I didn't really feel like I was missing out too much. Did you think about it a lot? I mean, it sounds like you sort of have to think about it just because you have to change your game. Yeah, not necessarily that I changed my game, but it was just like the natural uh, yeah, way that I had to play. But I do get jealous when I watch taller players and they're just not moving so much and they can just reach the shuttle with one step and their long arms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Do you uh, train for speed? I mean, do you do a lot of running? I used to do a lot of running. I was actually in cross country when I was in high school. And I tried to do a little bit of running, but more recently I've been working on reaching out more and being a little bigger with my arms so that uh, I don't have to run as much. <laughs> That's another method. Yes. So now that you're back in the States, what are you going to do for training? And how long will you be in, in the States? So the, this is the first week that I'm back. And I've been gone for so long. So I'm taking this week off of on-court training. I'll start next week. But I'm actually... So I'm in LA right now. But my sister lives in San Francisco, so I'll go up to see her next week and then stay there and train. Um, so I actually need to reach out to some people um, to see if I can join in their training, which I should probably do soon. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you do like 
being part of this group that you are part of overseas, sort of having this group of people to train with? Yeah, the sparring there is quite good. I think there's not a lot of women singles players there. Um, but I think what's nice about being women in sport is that we can always kind of spar with the male players. And yeah, it's not so easy for men, I guess, to find sparring that's higher than them. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you have a coach overseas. Do you have a coach that sort of guides you in the big picture kind of way? I mean, like now that you're back in the States, do you have a coach that's sort of telling you what to do in the gym and when to go get on court and stuff like that? Mm, I had a, I was working with a coach up till 2016 and we still see each other and work together sometimes, but not so much him telling me kind of what I need to do anymore. I think a lot of it is on myself and then knowing what I need to work on and then I think a lot of it is independent now based on my own needs and what I think is best for improvement. That's going to be a big difference from Denmark. A bit, but I think what's nice about the training in Denmark is it trains you to kind of think on your own. Relative to like when I went training in China, it's a lot more of a authoritative kind of method, whereas the coach just tells you what to do and you do it. Whereas in Denmark, I feel like it was more open to discussion. And so if something wasn't working, players could suggest improvements and how they could adjust the training to make it work for what they needed to work on. So I think I learned also to think a little bit more in Denmark, which will kind of help me here when I need to train as well. Cool. I like that. So what are you working on right now? So I'll be back for around a month and then I will play some tournaments in Asia. So that's what I'm working towards now. But do you mean specifically? Yeah, like what kind of skills are you are you targeting, I guess, maybe? Okay. Since I said I was more of a defensive player, I do want to improve more of my offensive play or more attacking. So that's one thing I'm working on right now. And then some smaller, like skills is specific so like my net skill my net play um, is something i'm working on as well and yeah some other small technique that i noticed i can improve on in my last match got it again i'm not that familiar with badminton so can you mm -hmm. describe maybe a little bit more of like what you mean by you want to become more of an attacking player and how you'll improve on that? Like what, what kind of things will you be doing between now and the next tournaments? So more attacking play is, I guess, uh, to have more of a intention in my shots and to set up rallies in a way that I can uh, push the pace and then find a way to win the point, I guess if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I think it, for me, I think the best way is to 
constantly remind myself what I'm working on during training that day and then focus on that one skill for that day and then kind of see uh, how to adjust training or the drill to accommodate that. Do you like competing? Hmm. Um, I think I do. Um, I really like training and I really like improving and growing. So I think whereas um, some players might not feel so motivated if there weren't tournaments, like especially during COVID when a lot of the tournaments were canceled, I really just liked training and like if I could uh, do something I couldn't do a week ago, I think that was already success to me. So I think... I do like competing to kind of challenge myself, but I'm also okay without competing, if that makes sense. (laughs) You know what? I'm going to, I'm going to ask you more questions about this because I'm exactly the same way. If I Uh, never, I really, you know, like I don't dislike competing, but what brings me joy in sports is exactly what you said is improving and growing and figuring things out. So could you describe that a little bit more? And like, have you thought about that? Like why that's what you like? And have you thought about why competition doesn't hold your attention in the way that it holds the attention for some other people? I mean, is this even a topic that's of of interest to you? Yeah, I, I think it is. I feel like it's quite difficult to kind of explain or articulate. But I don't know. I think uh, it's maybe we both have the growth mindset where... <laughs> We just are happy improving without needing to kind of prove ourselves. Um, I mean, not that I don't like competition, but hmm, I'm not sure. <laughs> what What do you think? I don't know. You know, I really don't know because I sometimes think of it in a very positive light. Like you're saying, I'm in the growth mindset. I'm really great. You know, all I care about is improving and getting better. (laughs) You know, progress is so important. And sometimes I think, am I afraid of competition? You know, is there something that I'm avoiding? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's true, too. I I do hate to lose. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, ah, I'm not sure. Okay. Do you get nervous? I I do get nervous, but I think I manage it a little bit better now than I did when I was younger. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I sweat a lot from my hands and my feet abnormally, I think. <laughs> like even now, as we're talking, my hands and my feet are just so sweaty. But I think that's how my body kind of cools off. Right. Yeah. But I think I do get a little bit nervous for every tournament, but I I think it's nice as well because I know that I still care. Right. Totally. Yeah. After a competition, you sort of, you sort of hinted at this, but after a competition, what do you look back on and how do you analyze? Do you, you know, like look at videos, like what kind of work do you do? looking back after you've finished competing? I think after the match, I sometimes write in my journal to kind of 
uh, reflect on what I think I did well and what I think I could improve on. And then I also have the recording of our match, the match I played, and then I kind of look back to see the same things of what I could have done better or something that I might not have thought of when I was playing myself. I can see it uh, kind of objectively or try trying to be objective when I rewatch my match. And then another aspect is to watch other people and then analyze what they do well and what I can kind of learn from them. I mean, one of the things about badminton that is very foreign to the sports that I do is the eye-hand coordination. Do you work on that at all? I, I never thought about it. I wonder if it's from practicing or like, uh, yeah, just training that it becomes better and better and the timing becomes a little bit better and so it becomes natural after mm -hmm. a while. Mm -hmm. So I don't think I do a lot of uh, hand-eye coordination drills that are targeted. Something that impresses me when I watch badminton is just the speed of the game and, you know, going back to the eye-hand coordination, being able to hit the shuttlecock, get it to where you want it to go. It's fast. I think with training, anybody can do it. <laughs> Does that help? I don't know, actually. <laughs> um, hmm. It seems like you're multitasking a lot, huh? Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I think, though, it might be like similar to driving manual, where it feels like you're doing a lot of things at once. But once you kind of get used to it, it becomes very natural. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like it's completely natural to you. I mean, again, it may be just because you've been playing as long as you have. Yeah, I think uh, probably with cycling as well, maybe. Like, I, it, I learned how to ride a bike really late. So it was um, so hard for me when I first learned. Um, but now I can kind of like cruise a little bit and hold one hand on the cycle with an umbrella in the other. <laughs> so I, maybe it's kind of like that, do you think? Yeah. Maybe, yeah, probably. And what about tactics? Do you think about tactics and strategy? Yeah, usually before the match, I'll watch a video of my opponent mm. and see what they do well, what they like to do, what they, uh, what are their weaknesses, and then come up with a plan. And then during the match, try to execute it. <laughs> so what are the tournaments in Asia coming up? And what are your goals there? So the tournaments in Asia are, the level is super 500. Um, so they're quite big tournaments. And it'll be very difficult because I think all the top players will be attending. My goal in every tournament is to, of course, get as far as I can. Yeah, I think, I feel like that sounds like such a simple answer, but yeah, <laughs> to do my best, I think. Uh, what is Super 500? Are, is that a kind of tournament? Yeah, I think it's also like tennis. I'm not sure where it's by, different levels of tournaments. So the highest is 
world championships and Olympics, and, and then just below that are a thousand tournaments. Mm. Okay. And then five hundred, three hundred, one hundred, and then international challenges. Got it. So when you go over to Asia, it sounds like there's several tournaments there. So like, how does that work in terms of traveling, and where will you stay, and and some of the logistics. Um, so I'll stay usually in the tournament hotel, and then I'll stay just the entire time in that country until the next tournament. So when I go to Asia, there'll actually be five tournaments that I'll be playing there. So Indonesia for two weeks, and then I think there's one week off, and then two Malaysian tournaments and a Singapore tournament. So during that time, I'll just stay there since it doesn't make sense to fly back to the U.S. in between. So then, if I am playing the matches and I lose before the tournament's over, I'll just take those remaining days and train with the other U.S. players or other players from other countries. Are you going there with the U.S. team? So we don't really have a national team. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's it's complicated. Tell、um, me more. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, we don't have like a national training center or a national training facility or coach. So usually every year we'll have trials to see who gets selected to play team tournaments. So when we play these tournaments in Asia, they're individual tournaments. So. Whoever signs up and can enter these tournaments will just go, and I think for these tournaments it'll just be me and one other U.S. player. So yeah, that's not really a team. Well, we both play singles as well, so it's not it's not really a team like environment in badminton right now. But I hope that's something that can change in the future. I'm a little befuddled. I mean, I'm assuming other countries have national teams. It's just the U- U.S. that currently does not have a national team. Is that right? Yeah, I think some. Yeah, actually,、um, a lot of the places that I've trained and been to have national teams. There are some independent players from some small countries, but yes, I think yeah, U.S. doesn't have a national team. And is this something that's under discussion?、Mm, I think in the past there was a national team, but I think something happened with politics or something, and there's no national team anymore. Or since I've been playing badminton, there was never a national team, and so yeah, I think it's just something that I grew up and think that is normal until I visit. Other countries, or speak to other players, and realize that, yeah, I think there needs to be some improvement towards the U.S. badminton kind of system. And so, since there's no national team, how are they selecting for world championships and the Olympics and other big events? For all the tournaments besides team events, it's by world ranking. Solely on world ranking. Yep. Ah, interesting.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. 
again, I'm a little speechless. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so there's also, because we have no national team, there's also no financial support. I, yeah, that was my next question is, so how are, how are you making this happen? Well, since I was younger, I was sponsored by mom and dad. Thanks, mom <laughs> and dad. <laughs> so I've been very lucky that I kind of had that financial backing and moral support. But yeah, I think it's very tough on um, people when they are juniors playing badminton and they graduate high school and they're at the crossroads of like whether they should spend a ton of money playing tournaments and not know if they'll kind of make it or like or to go to college. So that's why I feel like we lose out on a lot of potentially world-class players because there's no incentive to continue playing after high school. No kidding. Mm -hmm. is, there a, is there a collegiate system? I think there is, but it's not an NCAA sport. Hmm. So I think that makes it a little more difficult. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But there are some collegiate matches and collegiate nationals. But it's not so big that people will continue training every day for it. Yes, it ends up being sort of a self-selecting, very specific group that continues on. Mm -hmm. So we're sort of coming out of the pandemic. What was the pandemic like for you? Uh, actually, I'm very homebody. <laughs> so it was really great for me. <laughs> And it was nice because I had been traveling for some tournaments prior to that and was feeling actually a little burnt out. So the period of not training and then just resting the body and the mind was really helpful, I think. And it was really nice because I rarely come back home because I'm traveling so much. So I got to spend three months in quarantine with just me and my sister. And... Yeah, it, it was some of the best months of my life, I'd have to say. <laughs> Even though, yeah, it was an unfortunate circumstance. But yeah, I almost quit during that period of time, actually. Because it felt so nice to kind of uh, relax. And during that time, I was also exploring different options and learning things online. But actually, when the pandemic hit, it was the first year that I got the offer to play in Denmark. And so because I had signed the contract, I started training once we were allowed to. And uh, since then, I haven't stopped. <laughs> yeah, so why did you continue? Only because you had this contract? Yeah, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I do really love badminton as well, but I'm, I'm a big believer that there are also a lot of other options. But I think that motivated me to continue training. And then since I went there and trained and competed, I do really enjoy the sport and the improvement. So I signed again last year. And then I also re-signed again this year. So I'll be going back for next season. Not to go back to this no national team thing, but I would expect that it's very hard to sort of persevere 
in the way that you would have to if you were, you know, like only staying here in this country and that your opportunity to go to Denmark did make a huge difference. Yeah, because we don't get any support here and because for the league matches, we actually get paid to play. For me, it was an insane concept because I had been paying to play my whole life. And so with that opportunity, it just felt so nice to finally be able to get paid for doing something I love. Um, I mean, I don't do it for the money, of course, but it's nice to get a little bit back and not feel so guilty, I think, for myself, um, for always like spending my parents' money when I travel and stuff. So now I can kind of support myself. Yeah, that's awesome. And and the training there is uh, better, I'd say, than here at the moment. Right. So are you going to go for the Paris Olympics? I'm hoping to. Um, so I'll just try my best for these tournaments. But I have to say, when I was trying to qualify for 2016, I was very stressed and um, so focused on solely qualifying that I forgot to kind of enjoy the process. So this time around, although it is something I definitely would like to go to, I'm also not as, uh, that's not the sole goal, I'd say. I think it's sometimes hard to balance that intense pressure of the Olympics. Yeah. I mean, for so many people, that seems like the only thing that ever exists. And, and, you know, like when you're in the sport, that's not true. Yeah, I think so too. And it took me until after going to the Olympics to realize that. But it was actually why I quit in 2016 after I qualified because I had been playing so many tournaments and I was so burnt out that I no longer loved the sport. Like I, I actually hated it and like it felt like a job to go train and play tournaments at that time. So I think that was really sad and a waking call for like burnout. What are you going to do to prevent burnout this time? I mean, not just for the Olympics or preparing for the Olympics or trying to qualify for the Olympics, but just sort of in general, because, you know, it's a danger all the time. Yeah, for sure. I think it comes and goes like waves. But I think with the experience that I've had and just a little different mindset now, I feel like I've been a lot happier traveling and training. Um, I think like we talked about with like um, having that growth mindset, I think it helps a lot because we're not just focused on the results. We're enjoying the process and I think that's so important and I know for sure there will be times where I'll forget that when I'm very disappointed that I didn't achieve a result I wanted or lost to someone maybe that I think I shouldn't have. But I think overall, because I've experienced so much, I think I, I, at least I hope that I'll be able to manage that a little bit better and know when I need to rest. Right. Right. Yeah. So you were recently elected as the Badminton World Federation Athletes Commission representative. Tell me about that. What are you going to be doing? Do you have issues that you're focused on? 
Mm, our role is to kind of be the voice for the athletes. So when other athletes have some questions or some issues that they want to bring to BWF, they come to us. It's a pretty new position, and I've never been in kind of this role. So I'm still learning a lot, and I think we're still finding out how we can help and the best way we can help, and what players need the most. I hope I hope to learn a bit. I I think I need to be a little bit better at responding to emails. <laughs> <laughs> what have athletes come to you about? So one of the issues that was um, because of COVID is that the rankings have been frozen since 2019. Oh, yeah. Wow. So it's tough for a lot of upcoming players or new players to get into tournaments because there's people who have retired already and are still ranked very high because they're pre-Olympic points and stuff. That's one of the biggest concerns right now, especially with Olympics coming up and the qualification period will start next May. Wow. Yeah. So that's one of the biggest issues. It's tough for us because we don't really know what's going on as well. It's more on the federation and what they decide to do and how they decide how to kind of slowly drop off those tournaments. So the tournaments that were played between now and 2019 just were not counted? They're all counted. So the problem is usually it's by year. So if I play a tournament that I played last year and I played it just recently, the points that I got last year will drop off and then they'll count this year's points. But the problem is that they didn't drop off 2019 points. Ah, so they're just continuing to add. Yeah. It still only counts your 10 best tournaments. But the problem is like players who stopped playing are still ranked pretty high. And so they have an advantage to entering tournaments. Even though they haven't been playing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then there's players who have not played any tournaments and there were so few tournaments as well. It's hard for them to build ranking points to enter these tournaments. So it's kind of tough to decide what's the best action going forward mm -hmm. yeah what do you plan to do after badminton uh the million dollar question <laughs> <laughs> i always hate asking athletes that because i don't want to push them into quitting or anything <laughs> uh, yeah. it's really funny because i've been thinking about this question for so long since before 2016 and then when I went back to school to study and the answer remains the same of I have no idea. <laughs> but I think what's nice is that as I travel and kind of grow up a bit, I learn a little bit more about myself. And so I think there's things that I would like to try. I'm very interested in like psychology and people. So I... I'm thinking about something in that field, even though it's much different than what I studied in university. <laughs> Do you imagine carrying something from your athletic career into the next career or just 
severing ties. Hmm. I think it'd be nice to try something completely different. But I think it would also be kind of very rewarding to maybe coach on the side and still stay involved a little bit. I actually am not quite sure yet. I also never know how long I will continue to play, which is another question that I ask myself. Well, there's also certainly a lot of stuff that athletes get from sport that maybe not appear that it's transferable, but certainly is. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think our growth mindset can be applied to many <laughs> things. <laughs> <laughs> I love we're giving ourselves kudos. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of our experiences in sport prepares us for kind of the real world. I would agree. So it's been an hour. Did we miss anything? Is anything that you had wanted to talk about and we didn't get to? Mm. I don't know if I should mention anything about my sister. Yeah, talk about your sister. We were actually both trying to qualify for 2012 Olympics um, for women doubles, but we also both played singles. But I didn't qualify, um, but my sister did. That was really cool. Bittersweet. Like, yeah. Very happy for her, but also a little disappointed that I wasn't able to go with her. And then I think just that one of the best things that came out of that experience was how close we are now. Yeah, um, before that, I feel like we were sisters by blood, but now I feel like it's by choice. <laughs> and you'll be training with her in San Francisco? Or does she have a, a real job? Yeah, she actually she has a real job now. She has moved on. She actually stopped after 2012 when she was only 20. And I think that's why I feel like sometimes having the end goal as Olympics can be mm, uh, unhealthy, if, if that's the right word. Or uh, Because she got to the goal and then that was it? Yeah, I think so. But she was so young, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think we had a lot of high expectations for ourselves. So we were very hard on ourselves when we were losing to some of the top players. Looking back, like we were so young and we still had so much time to develop. But it, at the at the time, it felt like we sucked and like we would never be able to reach that level. Yeah, I think because I have continued, I know that that's not true. And yeah, I just wish she was still playing as well and we were doing this together when i go up north i'll still she plays uh recreationally now once in a while so i'll still be able to play with her there and just hang out so that'll be nice cool yeah well thank you yeah this has been awesome it's so good to meet you so nice to meet you too Thank you to everyone for tuning in for another episode of Hear Her Sports. I appreciate you being here and spreading the word about my incredible guests. There are other ways to keep the conversation going. Hear Her Sports is on social with the handle Hear Her Sports. You can send me an email, and I always love that. 
to elizabeth at hearhersports.com. And if you aren't a newsletter subscriber, check it out. Between episodes, I write a few words about issues in sports, the podcast, and how to watch women's sports or follow along in other ways. Sign up at hearhersports.com. Until next time, bye-bye. Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-back training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals that you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you. 